the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Tree Cat Wars on a Pioneer Planet, as we talk to Weber, Linskold, and Weiskopf. Plus, in space, no one can hear you scream, or for that matter, slurp soup. Tarzan, Barsoom, and Once More Unto the Breach with Poetry of War. And part 30 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have part one of an interview with David Weber and Jane Linskold on the new book they've co-authored, Tree Cat Wars. Joining in the conversation is also Bain publisher Tony Weisskopf. This one turned out very nicely. David and Jane are very articulate and voluble, and they really love this YA series they're creating together. Tree Cat Wars is the third book in the Star Kingdom series, this is part of the Honor Harrington universe. Our main protagonist is, in fact, Stephanie Harrington. Now, Stephanie is 15 in the book, but she lives 300 years before Honor Harrington does uh, on the planet Sphinx in the Manticoran system when it was just getting settled and the intelligent, empathetic tree cats were just being discovered. In fact, that's mainly what the series is about. It's a great series beginning with a beautiful friendship, continuing with fire season, and now with Tree Cat Wars. So buckle your seatbelts for a great set of interviews, but that's not all. We also have begun a project here at Bain to collect poetry into an audiobook that we're putting together. The poems have military themes, and they are all some of the favorite poems of your favorite Bain authors. We've had David Drake reading Rudyard Kipling's The Birds of Prey March on a previous podcast. This time we have Carrera and Countdown series creator Tom Kratman reading Apologia Propomate Mio by the great World War I poet Wilfred Owen. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. It's hard to believe, but we've arrived at part 30 of our ongoing series. All of that coming your way on the Bain Free Radio Hour. But first, here's the news. There are two story collections out from Bain in October. The World of Edgar Rice Burroughs, or The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, features all new stories by writers from today, writing essentially fan fiction in one of their favorite authors' universes, that author being Edgar Rice Burroughs. There are stories set in the worlds of Tarzan, Barsoom, Carson of Venus, and more, all of Burroughs' worlds. And there are some really top-notch writers in this anthology, including... Sarah Hoyt, Mike Resnick, Joe Lansdale, and lots more. Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia are the editors of this really super project, and it has some really good and totally unpolitically correct cover art by Dave Seeley, by the way. We are going to have a podcast interview with Sarah Hoyt, Mike Resnick, Robert Garcia, and Joe Lansdale. All of them are very enthusiastic and knowledgeable about ERB and they talk about his influence and the stories they wrote for the anthology. Also out this month is Bain Science Fiction Horror Anthology. Yes, you heard that right. In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. 
This one is put together by Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis, and it has a mixture of classic reprints and new material. All of the stories are scary, and all of them, in some way or another, take place in space. Sarah Hoyt has written a new story for this one, and so have I, Tony Daniel. There's also classic stuff, lots of that, such as author C. Clark's Frightening a Walk in the Dark, and many others. It's a great Halloween collection, and the title is, well, literally true. Unless you're talking smell-based languages, then maybe not. In space, no one can hear you scream. Check it out. This is part one of an interview with David Weber and Jane Linskold talking about their new book, Treecat Wars. Tony Weiskopf, Bain publisher and editor-in-chief, also joins in on the conversation. We're pleased to welcome authors David Weber and Jane Linskold and Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Hello, Tony. <laughs> David Weber is, of course, the creator of the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington series and the Honorverse within which that series is set. Beginning with On Basilisk Station, David's Honor Harrington science fiction novels have sold millions of copies. As those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast know, we've been serializing David's latest entry in the series, Shadow of Freedom. This podcast will mark the 30th installment of Shadow of Freedom, and we're getting into the heart of the book now. David is also the author of epic fantasy series, uh, including for Bane, the Bazel series featuring Bazel the Hradani. He's the uh, chosen champion of that laconic and rather acerbic war god, uh, battling and thinking his way through various challenges in a heroic fantasy setting. David has had 17 New York Times bestsellers, and there are over 7.5 million David Weber books in print. Now, as many of you know, Admiral Honor Harrington has an alien companion called a tree cat. His name is Nimitz, and he's both psychically empathetic and telepathic to a degree. Among other things, he serves as a very effective lie detector for Honor. In 2011, David decided to expand the history of the Honorverse with a new series for young adults and the young at heart featuring the ancestor of Honor Harrington, Stephanie Harrington. This series is called the Star Kingdom series, and it began with the novel A Beautiful Friendship, which tells the tale of the first meeting of humans and tree cats. For the second entry in the series, David joined with Jane Linskold to co-author the novel Fire Season. And now David and Jane have produced Tree Cat Wars, book three in the Star Kingdom series. Now, Jane Linskold is a best-selling author herself, the author of 23 novels, including the best-selling Firekeeper high fantasy series which features a, a young woman raised by intelligent wolves. She's also the author of many short stories and novellas, several of them set in David Weber's Honorverse as part of the Worlds of Honor anthology series. Jane is the winner of the American Libraries Association Voice of Youth Awards, the Boya Awards, for her fiction. How many of those have you won, Jane? Uh, it's, it's, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> My books have placed on their lists uh, repeatedly, but I've kind of lost count. Ah, they are like the stars. Jane has a Ph.D. in English literature. Her latest standalone novel uh, that's out is, I believe, Five Odd Honors, the latest entry in her Breaking the Wall contemporary fantasy adventure series. She's working on a new series for Tor Books called Artemis Awakening, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. And finally, Tony Weiskopf, my boss, is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Bain Books. So we're now to book three in the Star Kingdom series. Stephanie and her tree cat companion Lionheart, whose name among his own kind is Climbs Quickly, are now provisional rangers on the planet of Sphinx, or at least uh, Stephanie is. 
Stephanie is 15 years old now and has a boyfriend, something she was decidedly a bit too young for when the series began. So how did the series begin? Why was this the young adult series you decided to write, David? It actually originated in a uh, long short story or short novella uh, that I did, oh, low these many years ago in one of the anthologies. And I really wanted to turn it into a, a full-length novel. And it seemed to me that if anything in the Honorverse was going to offer kind of a, a YA portal, uh, Stephanie and, and uh, Lionheart uh, would probably be it. Now, when I, for want of a better term, novelized the, the, uh, the short story, um, I deliberately wrote the, the, the book as something which would be a challenging read for a, a very young reader um, and which I thought would transition someone uh, smoothly uh, into uh, adult fiction. Jane was my, my first choice for a collaborator from the beginning, and uh, she actually gave me some, uh, some pretty good uh, critical advice on the first one which was uh, very strongly my voice, but since she was going to be co-authoring and, and really taking the lead on several of the plot strands on the additional books, um, I wanted her to, you know, kind of be there on the ground. And if I was doing anything that she just plain couldn't stand, uh, I thought that would be a, a good time to find out. But I don't think there was anything you just plain couldn't stand, was there, Jane? No, absolutely. Um, my <laughs> suggestions tended to be more toward expanding things or adding things, but not eliminating anything that you'd already done. Um, mm -hmm. I suggested well, that Stephanie needed a few more, um, few more at least acquaintances her age, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I certainly didn't say, yeah. please throw this plot strand out the window. So the series was going to be a Weber Linskull series from the start. Yes, because Weber, uh, yeah, Weber was pretty generous about that. Well, and, and I have to say that one of the things that uh, has been um, interesting and useful to me uh, in working on this series with Jane, um, this is in the prehistory of the adult novels. It predates Basilisk Station. By the way, that's a reading title, not a pronouncing title, on Basilisk Station. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it predates that. It, you know, amongst the fans, we refer to that as OBS, and so just let it go at that. But anyway, yeah. um, the, um, this, this one it, it, predates that. I have that. to say, it, it, it was fun to, to hear uh, Jim Bain say that title. Jim had a lisp, and uh, uh -huh. he, he could never... <laughs> This is 300 years prior to to the Honorverse, uh, the, the adult novels, Downer Harrington novels. Um, some of the questions that Jane was asking me about background and bio uh, biosphere, and some of the suggestions that she was making, uh, really uh, fleshed out that uh, that period in the, in the Star Kingdom's history and the history of Sphinx. Um, in a way that I'm not sure would have happened if I'd done them solo. Um, 
there's there's a lot to be said for having uh, another perspective on on what you're doing, uh, not just on the characters, but on on what you're doing with the planet and and the uh, the society. I often felt that uh, you had stuff buried in your mind that you hadn't bothered to think through. But when I would ask a question, it was as if there were these, I don't know, subconscious files. You knew what was right well, for the world, and you were drawing yeah, well, on every, it and bringing it out. Uh, well, every so often we had an ooh, shiny moment where I'd start bouncing up and down in my chair and say, wait, wait, I know, I know, here's the whole thing. You know, Jay would say, calmly, whatever, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting you should say that, Jane, because um, some of the guys in BU9 working on the companion with me, uh, especially Chris Weave, uh, commented kind of on the same thing. They said, you know, Chris said, I never asked David a question that he didn't have an answer for. Uh, that, you know, when, when he asked me one, I said, well, of course it works this way. Even if I had never actually set it down anywhere or thought it out in, in so many words to myself, yeah. which I is a little scary feeling, because... Yeah, all I yeah, I, I, is, you know, it, I, it always felt to me like the the system, the world, etc., was very, very real to you. And so you knew the answer to questions that you had never bothered to ask, but you did know, and the answers were usually very consistent. I, I find that it works that way when I'm writing in the series, uh, that I just go along and I say, oh, that's how that works. You know, <laughs> I, I always mm-hmm. wondered about that. Was, was it Paul Anderson who, who recommended world building as therapy for paranoics? Um, <laughs> I can't I can't remember, but it was it was somebody. Steve White's fond of quoting that, uh, and I can't remember who who it is. But yeah, it, and and the books the books are fun. Uh, it's, every collaboration that I've ever done has been different from every other collaboration that I've ever done, or or perhaps it would be more more accurate to say that every collaborator I've ever worked with the relationship has been different from every other collaborator that I've ever worked with. It's been kind of neat to see where Jane has gone, for example, in, uh, in Tree Cat Wars. Um, I did the, the uh, off-sphinx scenes with Stephanie and, and, uh, uh, and Lionheart on, um, on, on Manticore. And Jane did uh, all of the, the on-sphinx scenes and integrated the ones that I had uh uh written for the off man the off sphinx into the into the primary storyline. And then uh, we did have one continuity error, uh well not continuity but t- timing error that was my fault um in the turnaround time for one of the characters to leave the Star Kingdom and come back. Uh I think the the fix we finally came up for worked well. It but did. it was kind it did. of a uh, it was kind of one of those oops moments. <laughs> oh, wait, he can't do that. <laughs> I, I, I think one of the things that, that I really enjoyed um, about this this series is getting the the view into the tree cat culture and uh, and, and learning more about, uh, about the tree cat and how they interact with each other on their own planet, um, not just with humans. And, and I think Jane brings a, a really neat perspective um, in, into that culture building. Uh, well, for me, I love aliens. 
um, there's nothing I like better than wrapping my head into somebody who's not human and keeping them not human. It's something that's that I. That's along with me so well. That's, that's <laughs> why you get along with me so well, Jane. That's you know. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all right. I wouldn't have said it. Um, <laughs> but but that's one of the things I really like, and one of my my great delights about my Firekeeper books is the number of peop- letters I've gotten from people who work with animals who say, "Thank God, somebody who writes animals that aren't just you know humans or or whatever." And so I felt the same way about the tree cats. Uh, I really wanted to be, to keep them comfortably alien, to keep their perspectives alien, to wrap my head into the spaces of non-vocalizing communicators and such. And Weber books, to the point that we did fire season, had really focused mostly on the tree cats within their relationships to humans, except when they, you know, went home on vacation or something. So this was a chance to do entire big chunks where it was tree cats interacting with tree cats who had never been influenced by human culture, and I just loved that. Well, uh, Jane, the the tree cats are telepathic, and uh, and they have sort of a group mind, but they're also very much individuals. How did y'all come up with this culture and 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 the parameters of it? Because it's really fascinating. Uh, because they cannot lie to each other. Well, I'd structured the, pri- the 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 primary tree cat culture um, early on, and one of the problems not problems challenges that we have yeah. in in this series is that we can't do something that contradicts what I'd already established as canon. In the in the um, in the Honor Harrington novels, um, so um, Jane uh, has been really, 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 really good about saying, "Okay, here's what I want the tree cats to do." Is that going to be a problem with how they're conceptualized and 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 how their society is is established? Um, I think one of the things that has been really, really cool about this is I've always had a very strong mental view picture of how the tree cats work. And Jane has stepped into that picture, but it's kind of like it's kind of like a represent a representational painting, two representational paintings of the same subject by two different artists. Okay? That you look at it and it is absolutely identifiably the same thing but there are subtle differences in color choices and, and so forth. And I think that it really has strengthened uh, the, the, the feel and the flavor and the texture of the, of the, of the tree cat culture. Uh, did you think that's a fair way to put it, Jane? Yeah, I do. Um, I also think that it helps that since these are prequels, any of the differences in... The real, in the painting, so to speak, can also be attributed to the difference in time period. Because yeah, that, that's... Uh, one of the things that's very cool about tree cats is um, once something gets into their shared culture history, the stuff the memory singers share around, the, you could have tree cats that have never seen a human that may never see a human, but who know about humans. 
who, yeah. and who Go know ahead. about humans exactly what the other tree cat that the memory came from knew about yeah. them. It's not just, not, oh, not, those are humans. Yeah, and not one, you know, it's not a remove. It's not a game of telephone where somebody tells you. They can actually walk into each other's memories, and that well, was one I, of the big, I, big challenges with, with doing yeah. the scenes with the tree cats in, especially tree cat wars, where... Uh, there's an entire plot thread that involves tree cats with no human involvement until yeah. very late in the book. I wanted to ask you about that. All right, so you've got these you've got these tree cats that can't lie to each other, and yet there's a murder. When I created the tree cats in the first place, I deliberately created uh, a species which, by human standards, was not hugely innovative, but which, once an innovation occurred, that innovation could be very quickly spread through the entire population. So it might take them longer to invent something than a human would, but once they invented it and had the concept, they could they could pass it around. It's not really... Okay, the fact that a tree cat can't successfully lie to another tree cat doesn't mean that what a tree cat is told by another tree cat will automatically be true. It means that if someone... If someone, act, if if a tree cat honestly believes that what he is saying is true, it will come across as true, even if in fact it is a misrepresentation of what happened. So, if you had a tree cat who had delusions, okay, uh, or had a psychotic episode and 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 truly believed that he had seen one tree cat kill another tree cat, and testified, you know, bark bark chewer uh, killed killed uh, fish catcher and actually believed it, that would come across as a true statement to the other tree cats, if you see what I'm saying, which could really make for an interesting tree cat detective novel somewhere down the road. <laughs> Book four forms itself. Not lying thing actually is one of the reasons that uh, Stephanie gets along with tree cats so well. Uh, Stephanie is uh, yeah. the, the master of uh, half-truths. And... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things. The lies to tell the truth, but not all of it. (laughs) But not all of it. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie is Stephanie on the whole is a good girl, but she's actually when she decides to be a bad girl, does it very very well. I think the difference is is that uh, between lying and deception, and even if you can't lie, you can still deceive. And that's what happens with the murder in Tree Cat Wars. The the Tree Cat who is the murderer sets out to deliberately withhold information. He can't lie, yes. but he can choose not to tell. Yes. And yes. Uh, that's how he well, gets away. There's, there's another thing that um, I did deliberately uh, back when I was first creating the tree cats that has had some interesting ramifications uh, in writing these stories which is the fact that because they are telepaths and because their vocal apparatus doesn't really allow them to make the kinds of sounds that humans make in speech, they don't even recognize initially that humans are speaking to each other because the communication mode is so alien to to theirs. And it's kind of like we're on different frequencies. the, 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 The telepathic bridge doesn't work very well, uh, even one way. Uh, The emotional, the empathy bridge does. So you've got tree cats who are, I would say, 
and Jane, I think you'd agree with me on this, in, in their own way, they are fully as intelligent as humans, mm-hmm. uh, with, a well, with a well-developed uh, concept of themselves, their society, and everything else. And they communicate uh, with a degree of richness and fullness that humans can't. But neither they nor, hu- nor the humans that they are involved with can communicate with one another. Right. And the, the difference in the way the two species communicate is so conceptually different that at this point in their, in their history, they can't even really wrap their minds around how to go about beginning to communicate with the other guy. Um, and that's, that leads to some interesting constraints in storytelling that I think in some ways actually strengthen the story. It's a, it's a constant struggle, too, to decide, um, you know, that's probably one of Tony's favorite editorial comments. Can they really, can they yeah. really communicate this? And, yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, I live with a lot of animals, and so do you, Weber, and not yeah. counting your kids. Um, oh, 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 oh. Sorry. Oh, um, that, was, that was, okay. Fair, fair. All right. But, <laughs> but. What I'm saying is we both, I think, appreciate the fact that you can have something of a non-human intelligence level that is non-verbal, that may not understand language, that still manages to do a fair amount of crossing the communication gap. But this is one of our problems with prequels that we face, is that so many of the human tree-cat communication breakthroughs are reserved for a long, 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 long time in the future with Honor and Nimitz. Yeah. The, the breakthrough into true two-way communication happens in Honor's lifetime. Uh, right. Once we get, it's actually uh, within a very few years of Stephanie Harrington's life, uh, according to my, my calendar that I have tucked away over here, that we have a, um, a memory singer who has um, lost her uh, ability to hear other mind voices. She can still project, but she can't hear. This is, you know, like a horrible uh, uh, maiming uh, for for someone who is a memory singer. And she sets out desperately to study how the two legs communicate in hopes that she can somehow figure out how to Mm -hmm. do that. And she is the one who actually makes the breakthrough into, whoa, this is what they're doing. And she's able to communicate it to the other tree cats. Um, and at that point, they begin uh, learning to understand what what humans. She's the one who who puts together the concepts of, of syntax and sentence structure and so forth, which is just so so alien to the tree cats. And I have to say that one problem we have is that the tree cats' communication with one another has to be intelligible to the human reader. And so it looks as if they actually, you know, have these these long, involved conversations in which they conjugate all the verbs properly and everything else. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's because, I, you know, there has to be an interface uh, for for the reader. And I felt uh, when I was first having tree cats communicate with one another uh, early on, really, in the short stories for the anthologies, I decided that it just... I actually had them in my first draft of one of the stories not speaking to one another in words, and boy, um, it, it 
it took away from the realization that this was a truly intelligent species because finding ways to, to communicate the fact that, well, they're not really talking to each other, it was weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of like uh, when Tony busted at me in Mutineer's Moon for using 15th century English. Okay, it was proper 15th century English, and at least I you came after the vowel shift. But she said, you know, this is really distracting <laughs> to the readers. So I went... I, I, went that, uh, that, that, I, w- I was merely passing on Jim's complaint. You, you, un- you understand. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. But I, I went Elizabethan for the rest of the books, and it worked better. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, in, in about ten years, when we we start telling stories through uh, direct neural stimulation, we'll be able to get that tree cat communication um, yeah. uh, translated yeah, we'll, more effectively. We'll, we'll have it knocked then. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I think that um, you know I'm looking at, at where people are going right now with uh, with uh, the what you can do with an electronic format book that you can't do with a with a dead tree book. And it's really, you know, fascinating. And I, I you know, I have to admit there are moments when I'm I'm sort of with Roger Kipling. It's clever, but is it art, you know? Um <laughs> I, I, I think the, the key to the, all of that is, is uh, as you say, distractions. Um, you know, uh, is it distracting from the author's uh, storytelling? Um, and and we, we we have experimented uh, very early on. Bain did with um, uh, hyperlinks and hypertext and so on um, in, in in storytelling. And, and for the for the most part, it it, it does distract. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean that we won't figure out a way to to make it work, but we but, haven't yet. Well, it's kind of like the way people fell in love with 3D in the movies. And, mm. you know, to me, it, it's very distracting because you know at some point in the movie they're going to say, hey, look at this cool 3D effect, which isn't really part of telling the story. Um, yeah, I was uh, over the weekend ducking meatballs and bananas at uh, the, a movie I was watching, the sequel to uh, Cloudy with Meatballs uh, with my kids, and I couldn't follow the story. There was things flying at me the whole time. <laughs> I think, you know, in many ways, in many ways still, my favorite book that Jane ever did uh, was her very first one, uh, Companion to Dragons. um, Brothers and Dragons, uh, Companion to Owls. Brothers and Dragons, Companion to Owls, yes. Um, And one of the things that she does in it that I thought was really, really cool, two things. Her heroine can speak only in quotations, Um, and and, uh, it's kind of a case of watching this person pick quotations that that say what needs to be said exactly. Um, But the other thing that I really, really like about it is that objects talk to this character, and they actually do. And it's integrated into the story in a way that makes it not a gimmick, but an integral part of of the of the construction of how this character communicates with and perceives the world around her, and I think some of that same kind of 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 touch is involved in her Firekeeper books. Uh, I think it's uh, I see it in uh, Artemis Rising. I, I read the manuscript on it. Really Artemis, liked Artemis it. Awakening, yeah. Artemis Awakening. I'm sorry, you know I'm. 
That's okay. I'll keep that in mind as a later series title. I like it. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, see, I'm coming coming up on my 60th birthday uh, this month, and obviously my brain is working even more poorly than before. But what I I wanted to say is that I – some she she brings some of that same stuff to her subtly different take on the tree cats from my take. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the thing that I like about it is, uh, Tony, you used the term group mind uh, about the tree cats, and that's not really the way that it works. Uh, I mean, they have a, 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 a communicate they communicate on a depth that humans don't, but they have different personalities. Okay, and Jane's different personalities are different from my different personalities. We create individual characters who are tree cats, but we come at it in a way that means that there's a, a more of a contrast and a richness to the entire ensemble because I've created some of them and Jane's created some of them, and we're coming from slightly different places. And I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, can we let's get back to Tree Cat Wars for a moment and talk about how this works within the uh, within the story? Um, Jane, maybe you can uh, can you set up what the wars are here and and who's uh, what the problems the Tree Cats are having at this in, as the book begins? Um, sure. The Tree Cat Wars is one of those titles on a couple of levels. On the one hand, it's the ongoing question of how much of their world will the tree cats be permitted to control? Mm-hmm. But the other side is very literally the horrible thing for a race of empaths, telepaths of war against themselves. In fire season, there was a tremendous amount of environmental destruction. And in tree cat wars, we get to see what happens when Tree cats have been forced out of their habitat, have nowhere to go. The intrusion of humans into what would have been perhaps more open areas means they have very little choice of where to go. And when it's the choice of die or fight, they are forced into uh, that one might call it that group mind, its only choice becomes the unthinkable, fighting people who you can feel what you're doing to them, which is enough to drive anyone insane and is sort of the greatest horror for tree cats. But when your choice is die, starve to death when the next multi-month-long Stinksian winter comes along, you don't have much choice. I think it's even more, it's not just letting yourself die, but it's also protecting your children and protecting the future of your clan. And protecting all the memories your clan holds. It's Mm -hmm. protecting your history as well, not just history in an abstract sense, but in the sense that your your memory speakers hold a chunk of, of the tree cat history one one of the things that happens to the uh uh the 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 clan who has lost its range is they lose all of their senior memory singers too they only have yeah. one very young all all memory singers are female um and they have only one very young 
uh, potential memory singer. And so in addition to having become the landless clan because their 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 range was was largely destroyed, um, they're adrift uh, in a way. They, they, they can feel their very identity seeping away, and they know that if they don't survive, there won't be anyone to pass along even their current memories and what they can reconstruct from what their memory singers had already told them uh, at, at earlier points. One thing, too, tree cats are, are predators. And so... You know, there's there's a degree, there's an element to which, okay, they have to be able to deal with the 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 prey animals that that they're that they're stalking and killing. They have to be able to deal with the emotions that they're going to be sensing from from those. But it goes to a whole different level when you have as much bandwidth as you've got with another tree cat and that two-way communication. That was part one of our interview with David Weber and Jane Linskold. Part two will be coming up in the next podcast, so keep your trot lines out for that one. We are collecting military poetry here at Bain. Uh, We're going to put together a book of this stuff. We're having all of your favorite writers contribute their favorite poems to the project. We'll have poems by David Drake, Tom Kratman, David Weber, and lots of other uh, Bain authors. We want to feature some of these poems on the podcast as we go along. We have a wonderful set of four poems from Tom Kratman, the creator of the Carrera series and also the Countdown Military Adventure series. And we're going to start with that on this podcast. Apologia pro poemate mio, Wilfred Owen, killed in action 1918. I too saw God through mud, the mud that cracked on cheeks when wretches smiled. War brought more glory to their eyes than blood, and gave their laughs more glee than shakes a child. Merry it was to laugh there, where death became absurd and life absurder. For power was on us as we slashed bones bare, not to feel sickness or remorse of murder. I too have dropped off fear behind the barrage, dead as my platoon, and sailed in my spirit surging light and clear past the entanglement where hopes lay strewn, and witnessed exultation, faces that used to curse me scowl for scowl, shine and lift up with passion of oblation, seraphic for an hour, though they were foul. I have made fellowships, untold of happy lovers in old song, for love is not the binding of fair lips with the soft silk of eyes that look and long by joy whose ribbon slips. But wound with war's hard wire whose stakes are strong, bound with the bandage of the arm that drips, knit in the webbing of the rifle thong. I have perceived much beauty in the horse oaths that kept our courage straight, heard music in the silentness of duty, found peace where shell-storms spouted red as spate. Nevertheless, except you share with them in hell the sorrowful dark of hell, whose world is but the trembling of a flare, and heaven but as the highway for a shell, you shall not hear their mirth, you shall not come to think them well content by any jest of mine. These men are worth your tears. You are not worth their merriment. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. 
Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has reached a truce with a long-standing enemy, the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling and on the verge, a region at the edge of that empire, Rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge, often with brutal tactics and by providing support to puppet dictators. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside support. Aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the Star Empire of Manticore. But it's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacists who wish to see the Solarian League and the Star Empire at war. In the Mobius system, rebels have shown stiff resistance in the face of a reign of terror. Popular opinion has only grown more volatile since a massacre by the Presidential Guard at a peaceful protest. President Lombroso has requested military support from the Solarian Office of Frontier Security, but in the meantime, his own forces must hold the line against increasingly desperate and determined rebels who are fighting for freedom on a planet of oppression. Here's part 30 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 22 The lead airvan wore the colors of SINS, System Information and News Service, the Mobius System's official government news agency, as it moved sedately down the broad canyon between the business towers that dominated downtown landing. There was no obvious connection between it and the other pair of vans, or the two somewhat battered-looking private air cars, and all five vehicles were careful to obey all traffic signals as they made their way towards their various destinations. Appearances could be deceiving, however, and the eleven men and seven women in the lead van sat grim and silent, Final weapons check completed, waiting for the carnage to come. Three minutes, the driver said quietly over his shoulder. None of the passengers replied. They didn't have to. Everyone knew what his or her job was, just as all of them knew that a strike like this in the middle of the day was more than merely risky. In many ways, it approached the suicidal, yet that was one of the strengths of their plan— no one, not even that kill-crazy bitch Yardley, was going to see this one coming. The glittering tower of the Trifecta Corporation loomed ahead of them. Trifecta held a special place in the hearts of the Mobius Liberation Front. It was scarcely among the great transtellers of the Solarian League, barely a bit player compared to Technodyne or Zumwalt of Ulterra, really. But it still owned something like 60% of the Mobius planetary economy outright. It wasn't shy about proclaiming the fact here in its private little preserve, either. The ivory-tinted Trifecta Tower, known to its owners as the Silver Lady, and to most citizens of Mobius, privately at least, as the White Whore, was the tallest structure on the entire planet. No pains had been spared to turn it into the sort of glittering showplace and monument to corporate grandeur an outfit Trifecta's size could never have afforded for many reasons in the core. It was a brazen statement that Mobius was Trifecta's private preserve, 
and that everyone who lived there was effectively a trifecta serf. Well, the strike team's leader thought grimly, our lords and masters are about to find out these serfs aren't very happy with them, and they're not going to be very happy with us in a few minutes. Here we go, the driver said. The SINS van shot forward, accelerating suddenly, turning out of its traffic lane and cutting across three others. Air cars and lorries swerved wildly as the rogue vehicle violated their airspace and the traffic control frequencies exploded with abrupt imprecations, controllers' questions, and emergency orders. The air van didn't care about any of that. It simply altered course, climbing steeply, and arrowed straight into a restricted, high-security access point. The portal in the side of Trifecta Tower was specifically dedicated to the use of its senior executives. Entry by anyone else was strictly forbidden, and the 11 Trifecta security personnel manning the access point had standing orders to use lethal force if anyone tried to break into it anyway. Unfortunately for Trifecta's intentions, the people who'd planned this attack had been right in at least one respect. No one in his right mind would have expected anyone to launch an attack like this in the middle of the business day. The security detail's initial reaction was that they were looking at a traffic accident about to happen on a grand scale, courtesy of a drunk or somehow suddenly incapacitated driver. It was the only logical assumption, especially given the van's livery, and before they could realize how wrong they were, the accelerating vehicle was right on top of them, the side windows had slammed abruptly open, and 18 military-grade pulse rifles opened fire. Despite their body armor, the security men never had a chance in the face of that much concentrated firepower. Most of them were killed outright. The three survivors were all badly wounded. All of them would quietly bleed to death eventually and the van went scorching past them. It was moving too rapidly to stop in the available space, but the strike leader had planned on that as well. There was room for the vehicle to kill a lot of speed before it crashed into the assistant planetary operations manager's parking stall, crumpling the last third of his limousine in on itself before it staggered to a halt. Specially reinforced shoulder harnesses and Solarian-manufactured combat helmets protected its passengers from the impact, and all of them bailed out instantly through the side doors. Four of them moved quickly to the security station they'd just shot up. They ignored the dead and wounded, except to kick any personal weapons away from anyone who seemed to still be breathing, and shot open the lockers the trifecta personnel hadn't had time to get to. They dragged out the military-grade tri-barrels, heavy enough to take down an armored stingship if they hit it right, which President Lombroso had personally authorized for trifecta's private security force, and slammed them onto the swivel mounts built into the security office, the rest of the strike force lunged for the emergency fire exits. The doors were locked, of course, but that had been anticipated, and incendiary charges turned the locks to slag. Shoulders rammed into the suddenly unlocked panels, smashing them open, and boots clattered on the risers as the attackers stormed up the old-fashioned stairs. They burst into an expensive foyer just as the first security men came spilling out of the lift banks in response to the alarms. Security had the advantage of internal cameras and free-flow communications links. The attackers had the advantage of knowing exactly what they were doing and where they were going to accomplish it. The result was that they were ready, and the security team wasn't when the lift doors opened. Pulsar darts turned the two lift cars into abattoirs, and a grenade tossed into each of them made sure all of these bodies were dead. Four more team members peeled off, covering the foyer, while the ten remaining attackers burst into the inner sanctum of the Trifecta Corporation. 
Down on the floor, the team leader bellowed. Down on the floor or die. The highly decorative receptionist and both of his assistants dived for the floor instantly, sliding under their desks and covering their heads with their arms. Aides and secretaries who didn't have a clue what was happening poked their heads out of office doorways, gawking at the sudden eruption of roughly dressed armed proles. Most of them got the message as quickly as the receptionist had. The faster ones popped back into their offices like old Terran prairie dogs. Others dropped to the floor, burying their noses in the expensive carpet, but... Who the fuck do you think you are, you got? Both pulsar darts took the red-faced man dead center as he came storming out of his office. The expanding anti-personnel darts tore through his body in a spray-painted red cloud, and he went down, furious question chopped off in mid-word, as his lungs and heart shredded and most of his right shoulder blade disintegrated into splinters of finely separated bone. There were lots of screams now, and the leader charged down the corridor with five other men and women as a third quartet peeled off to hold the foyer. He smashed his way through the ornate, expensive door at the end of the hall, and a pulsar dart whined past his ear. The head of one of his fellows exploded under its impact, and he triggered a return burst that sawed the bodyguard standing in front of the huge desk almost in half. The bodyguard went down, and the leader vaulted the desk— a richly-dressed, wild-eyed woman cowered under it, both hands pressed to her mouth, expensively coiffured hair wildly awry, and he smiled coldly. "'I think you'd better come out, Miss Guernica,' he said. Sirens howled all across the city of Landing. Public buildings went into lockdown. Corporate structures mustered their own armies of private security goons. Presidential guard-armored vehicles thundered into ground-level and subsurface roadways— Sting ships streaked into the air above the city, and unmanned reconnaissance platforms went swarming through the airspace around Trifecta Tower. The traffic in the vicinity, obedient to the strident commands of city traffic control, cleared the area as quickly as possible. In the case of two nondescript vans, neither of which looked the least bit like the one which had crashed into Trifecta Tower, the fastest way to do that was to land. One sat down hastily and awkwardly on the surface roadway a half-block down Trifecta Boulevard from the tower. The second landed on the ground level of a public parking garage directly across the street from it. Their drivers, who obviously had no desire to find themselves in the middle of what looked like turning into a free-fire zone, locked their vehicles and took to their heels. They were hardly alone in that. After the previous month's riots, no Mobian was going to be stupid enough to hang around when the presidential guard could be expected momentarily. A mass exodus turned the busy downtown blocks into a ghost town in mere minutes, leaving streets, slidewalks, and aerial walkways to the security troops already storming into the area. Six blocks from the Trifecta Tower, in opposite directions, the pair of battered air cars swooped down just long enough to pick up the fleeing van drivers, then vanished into the city's anonymity. The communicator on Georgina Guernica's desk buzzed loudly. The strike leader looked at it for a moment, then pressed the voice-only acceptance key. Yes? This is General Yardley, a hard female voice said from the blank com. Who am I speaking to? Did you screen just to waste my time asking stupid questions? You realize, of course, that none of you are getting out of this alive, Yardley replied flatly. That's possible, the strike leader acknowledged. We won't go alone, though. In fact, I think the body counts already in our favor. The one who dies with the most kills is still dead, Yardley shot back, and the leader surprised himself with a harsh chuckle. 
That's clever, General. Cleverer than I would have expected out of a homicidal bitch like you. Do you really want to talk, or should I just hang up? I presume you have some sort of demands to make. Why don't you go ahead and make them so we can get it over with? My demands are pretty simple, actually. You turn loose all of the innocent men and women you've arrested over the last two or three tea weeks and provide us with an air car, and Ms. Guernica takes a little trip with us. You fulfill your side of the bargain, and we turn her loose alive and unharmed. You screw around with us, and Lombroso gets to explain to Trifecta why it's going to need a new system operations manager here in Mobius. No fucking way. Yardley's voice was even flatter than before. You harm Miss Guernica in any way, and I promise you'll take a long time dying. That would suppose you manage to take any of us alive, the leader responded, which isn't going to happen. Mind you, we'd rather get out of this in one piece, but we're okay with it either way. Your fucking presidential guard made sure of that last month. You know what I've got left to lose, General Yardley? Last month, it would have been a wife, a teenage daughter, and a ten-year-old son. Today, well, I'll let you guess. There was silence for a moment, and the leader heard Guernica whimpering in terror as she crouched in a corner with a pistol barrel pressed to the side of her head. Once upon a time, his heart might have felt at least some pity for her, but that had been then, and this was now. Should I assume the rest of your murdering little band feels the same way? Yardley asked finally. I've got your own speakerphone, General, he replied, looking up to meet the other's eyes. You hear anybody disagreeing with me? It's still not going to happen, Yardley shot back. I let you go with Miss Guernica, and you're not going to turn her loose. You're going to hang on to her, and you're going to keep on making demands that get steeper and steeper until there's no way in hell you're going to get what you ask for. And then you kill her anyway, and you blame it on us. I don't think we're going to play that game. Up to you, General. But before you make up your mind... He beckoned to the woman holding the gun to Guernica's head, and she jerked the trifecta executive to her feet and half-dragged, half-led her across to the desk. The leader looked at Guernica for a moment, then pointed at the comm terminal. For God's sake, Yardley! Guernica screamed into the mic. What the fuck are you thinking? Give these people whatever the hell they want! The leader nodded, and Guernica was hauled back to her corner and shoved back onto her knees. He waited another moment, then turned back to the comm himself. There you go. Your mistress's voice has spoken, General. Now you know she's still alive, and you've got your marching orders. What are you going to do? I don't think Trifecta's going to be very happy with you and Lombroso if she ends up dead in a firefight now that she's told you what you're supposed to do. The silence from the other end of the comlink was profound. Jesus, General, Colonel Tyler Braddock exclaimed. Colonel Braddock, who was very fond of his self-assigned call sign, Tiger, was a good ten centimeters taller and far broader across the shoulders than Olivia Yardley. At the moment, his swarthy complexion was pale and sweat beaded his hairline. They've really got Guernica in there. What the fuck do we do now? 
Shut up, Colonel, Yardley said in a flat, dangerous voice. Her hazel eyes were hard as she glared up at the taller Braddock. It was his scorpions which had opened fire last month and touched off the May riots, and she wasn't feeling particularly charitable where he was concerned at the moment. He looked down at her, opened his mouth, then clamped it shut again and nodded, and she snorted. At least the idiot had some sense of self-preservation. What we're not going to do, she told him then, is let these bastards panic us into promising them what they want. Not unless I can figure out a way to make it look like they're actually getting it, right up to the second we shoot them all in the head. If we let them out of that tower with Guernica, this shit is just getting started. At the moment, we've got them pinned up in there, and I want to make damn sure they aren't going anywhere, so start moving your goddamn troops into position and try not to kill anybody you don't have to this time. Braddock flushed angrily, but he kept his mouth shut, nodded, and climbed out of Yardley's command vehicle. He stalked down the frozen slidewalk towards his own command post, and Yardley watched him go. I suppose it's too much to hope for that the bastards on the other side will manage to kill him for me, she reflected. I can always dream, though. In the meantime, she had to figure out what she was going to recommend to President Lombroso, and she grimaced at the thought. The president wasn't a lot happier with her than she was with Braddock, and this wasn't going to help. Maybe she could figure out a way to make it an intelligence failure and put it all on Friedman Matias? She'd have to think about that. The parking garage on the far side of Trifecta Boulevard, the surface-level street east of the corporate tower, offered an ideal staging area for Colonel Braddock's scorpions. Each scorpion individually exceeded the maximum vehicle weight for the garage by about 20%, but there were only 30 of them. Distributed across four floors, their weight was more than sufficiently spread out. Better yet, the garage had accesses on both its east and west sides, which meant the AFVs could be moved into the garage from the west without anyone in Trifecta Tower seeing them. One might have wondered how useful armored vehicles were going to be in a situation like this one, but over the last few weeks, it had become the Presidential Guard's policy to deploy overwhelming force in order to overawe and terrify potential dissidents. Besides, it was always possible there was a ground assault element involved in this insane plan after all, and having the firepower on hand to deal with one if it came along seemed like a good thing. Braddock personally supervised the movement of his vehicles into the garage, then moved his own command vehicle to the roof. The vehicle crew was clearly uncomfortable sitting out there in the open, as they remembered the anti-tank launchers they'd encountered last month. Braddock didn't care about that. First, because he doubted these bastards were going to escalate the confrontation by using heavy weapons, assuming they had any, any sooner than they had to. And second, because he wasn't in the command vehicle. He'd moved to a better vantage point just inside the ground-level entrance facing the tower, maintaining his connection to the command vehicle on a secure frequency while its position on top of the garage gave it the best transmission reach he could come up with. Now he keyed the mic. Command one, he said, and waited for the earbug tone to tell him the communications computer had automatically patched him through to Yardley. Command one, Tagger is in position, he said then. Good, Yardley replied.
The desk comm buzzed again, and the strike leader punched the key. What can I do for you, General? You could start by cutting your throats and saving me the effort, Yardley suggested. Sorry to disappoint you, but we're not going anywhere without Guernica, and we're planning on killing a lot more of you bastards before you ever get into this office. So, shall we move on to your second suggestion? Let Miss Guernica leave the building unharmed, and we'll let you and the rest of your murderers withdraw unmolested. The leader laughed out loud. <laughs> oh, I don't think so, he half chortled. As fairy tales go, it's not bad, but we stopped believing in the tooth fairy a long time ago. Try again. All right. Third option. You stay right where the fuck you are, we sit outside here, and we starve your asses out. How does that sound? At least a little more like you're telling the truth. On the other hand, we brought a fair amount of food with us. Of course, we won't be able to share any of it with Miss Guernica or the other trifecta employees in here with us, so they'll probably get hungry and dehydrated a lot faster than we will. If you want to try it, though, more power to you. Oh, I'm just getting started, Yardley told him. There's always the possibility of knockout gas through the environmental systems, or we send in SWAT teams. That's a damned big tower, and you can't begin to put fire teams everywhere you'd need to be to stop us. We can work our way around you, get our own teams in position, then blow our way through walls and floors to take you out. Probably, the strike leader acknowledged. I'd say the chances of your pulling that off without our killing Miss Guernica before you get in here are no more than 40-60, though, and that's if you wait a couple days until fatigue and anxiety start dulling our alertness. Of course, that's also assuming we're willing to wait that long before we just go ahead and shoot the bitch. For that matter, we've got somewhere around 50 more trifecta employees up here, most of them pretty damned senior, and we don't especially like any of them either. You want some of them airmailed back? They'll make an awful mess when they hit the pavement without countergrav. There was silence from Yardley's end, and the strike leader leaned back in Guernica's sinfully comfortable chair. I've been informed by President Lombroso that you're not getting your air car and you're not getting out of that building without handing Miss Guernica over to us unharmed, Yardley said finally. That's not negotiable. No, that's not negotiable yet, the strike leader corrected her. And I didn't expect it to be either, but we're not going anywhere and you're not moving anyone else into this building until he's had an opportunity to rethink that position. You think not? Not unless you want to start getting bits and pieces of Trifecta's senior management team back as greasy spots on the street. You start throwing people out of windows, and I may just decide the only chance Miss Guernica has is for us to get in there before you throw her out one. I'll take my chances on that. Besides... What makes you think that's the only string to our bow? I know how many people got inside with you, Yardley said. That tower is lousy with security cameras, you know. I know about the people you've got covering your entry portal, 
And those tri-barrels of theirs won't do squat if I decide to send in the scorpions, by the way. And I know how many people you've got covering the lift banks. I even know how many people got into Ms. Guernica's office with you and that you lost somebody on the way in. And are you getting very much information from them now? The strike leader inquired in an interested tone. He almost imagined he could hear her teeth grinding together in the silence from the other end. Yeah, we know about the cameras, he went on after a moment and shrugged. There was no way to take them out before we got inside, but you're not seeing a damned thing from them now, which means you don't know whether we've pulled Sam's out of our van, or ATW's for that matter, or not. You don't even know if we've still got Guernica in her office or staked out across the lift bank doors. Oh, and by the way, did you know Ms. Guernica has the master codes to access all of the building's surveillance and environmental control systems from her desk? She was kind enough to give them to us when we insisted. So if you want to try infiltrating SWAT teams into the building, you go right ahead. Listen, Yardley said. I'm not going to send people up there after you, not yet, but I damned well am going to secure the lower floors of that tower. You try to do that, and someone's going to get hurt, the strike leader said flatly. He was watching the feed from the tower's ground-level security cameras as he spoke. At least two companies of the Presidential Guard were advancing across Trifecta Boulevard from the parking garage. Even if you manage to get troops inside the tower, it's not going to buy you any edge you don't already have. But if they keep coming, you're going to regret the attempt. Are you threatening the hostages again? Yardley laughed harshly. You're not going to kill Ms. Guernica or even any of the other management personnel with her until you feel a hell of a lot more threatened than that. And if you do... You lose your bargaining chips, and we come straight in however hard and fast we have to. Last warning, the strike leader told her, still watching the advancing troops. Call them off now. Yardley's eyes narrowed. His voice was flat, unwavering. In fact, there was something almost like satisfaction in it, and alarm bells sounded in the back of her brain but she couldn't back off. She had to shake his nerve, destroy his confidence that he was in control of the situation, calling the tune while she had no option but to dance to it. She had to assert her ability to control the situation, and so she simply sat back, folded her arms, and watched her command vehicle's visual displays. Have it your way, General, the strike leader said and pressed a button. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 30, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Christopher Ciafani and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a thousand memory singers and pathetic elegies of appreciation to David Weber, Jane Linsgold, Tony Weiskopf, and Tom Crapman. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. Keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.